Well, let's pray. We'll begin the uh, time of worship in the Word with some prayer. Father, thank you for your Word. It is true and authoritative and life-giving. and Everything it says is absolutely trustworthy. I pray that my weak words would be powered by your strong spirit in order that your word may have the floor and that you can speak to each one of us exactly where we're at in ways that I could never imagine, but you know exactly what you're doing. So I trust you with your word and your spirit. And I ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. So nice to be back with you guys. Last time I was here, the lakes are frozen over, and I drove through between them, and they're looking like they're thawing. I feel like they're looking like they're thawing. It's April. <laughs> it's still a little cold, but uh, grateful we are getting a chance to be back together again. I was talking uh, last time in Ruth chapter 1, and I figured I'll just continue on with Ruth chapter 2 unless somebody did it already. Nobody? Okay, good, good. My wife has uh, coined a term for our family. Uh, she calls it Linden luck. Unfortunately, that means bad luck. Um, for instance, a couple years back, we had a furnace die out in late December. Always late December. And, uh, of course, we had an upstairs furnace and a downstairs furnace. The upstairs one was working, so we all moved upstairs. and We were kind of living there. Downstairs one wasn't. Uh, we had the installation appointment all set up. But that day, the day they were supposed to install the new furnace, we had a fire in our master bedroom. And uh, so the uh, and then we found out, of course, that not only did we have to replace the downstairs furnace, we had to replace them both. Oh, yeah, and both the upstairs and downstairs AC units, too. Like, we had that kind of money laying around, right? All that got set aside to make way for the four fire engines in our driveway, putting out a fire in our, in our bathroom and bedroom. Well, eventually we got the furnaces replaced. Uh, the fire failed to keep us warm for very long. And we hired this restoration company. I mean, it, was a, it had a good reputation. I looked it up. I talked to a couple people. Google had four and a half stars, you know, out of five. So uh, we were thinking, great, uh, only to get, as luck would have it, uh, the half-star team uh, for us. <laughs> we were living on the first floor and in the basement for almost a year waiting them for them to fix two rooms, the bedroom and the bathroom. It was awful. In fact, some of the workers were even going, what is taking them so long? It was terrible. Needless to say, I sent a Google review and they dropped half a star. <clears throat> Finally, thanks to my wife's diligent work, she's very careful at handling the finance. She's great at that. And we were, we were ready to celebrate paying off the furnaces ahead of time. The week we were supposed to pay off those furnaces, our well pump went out, just in time to pick up where the furnace payments left off. That's what my wife, Desiree, calls Linden luck. Now, truth be told, uh, we have experienced plenty of good luck, if there's such a thing. Um, but I think we as human beings tend to dwell on the misfortunes, and we tend to ignore or brush off the fortunate circumstances. But then again, that asks or begs the question, is it really luck. Is this, any of this, really coincidence? Ruth chapter 2, if you don't have your Bible open by now, Ruth chapter 2, right after the book of Judges, right before First and Second Samuel, 
kind of the bridge between Judges and 1st 2nd Samuel. Although I will tell you in the Hebrew Bible, if you're looking it up, it's right after Proverbs. Why? Because Proverbs ends with the wife of excellence, the ancient Chayel. That term is used one other time in the Old Testament. It's used about Ruth. She's called that in Ruth 3.10. Anyway, after Judges, Ruth. Henry. Now, I think we need to stop thinking in terms of luck and coincidence and start thinking in terms of providence. And I think our worldview of God's providence, even, is scattered at best, right? Well, I mean, when something really amazing happens, what do we call that? We call it a God fill in the blank. God thing or God moment, right? You never ever notice that when bad things happen, we never call those God moments or God things? Hmm. We think of everything else as coincidence or, uh, or luck, right? Here's the difference between providence and luck, okay? There is good luck and there is bad luck. There are good coincidences and there are bad coincidences. There is no such category for providence. You know, the invisible hand of God that's guiding all the affairs of human history and everyday life, moving towards his purposes, the subtler movements of God behind the scenes. The story of Ruth, this not very epic story, no miracles, no mountaintop moments, no prophetic utterances. It's just two widows, two different races, a Moabite and an Israelite some dire tragedies and the subtle movements of God, this is the place where the scriptures are trying to train us to see the subtler movements of God and to see how God's providence is pushing us towards courage and hope and connection to God and to see the bigger picture of his redemptive purposes as well. This story forces us to stop seeing luck and start seeing something else entirely. Now, when I was here last, we closed Ruth chapter 1, uh, and in chapter 1, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons, Machlon and Kilion, uh, had left the land of Israel during a famine. Uh, they left the land of Judah for the, and the Hebrew literally says, the fields of Moab. That's Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. Interesting choice of words, fields of Moab, not the land of Moab, fields. I digress. Within five verses, Naomi's husband and her two sons are dead. Neither of the sons' marriages uh, to Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, have produced children. There's infertility issues. Bad luck, I suppose. So Naomi, hearing that God has visited his people with food again, leaves the fields of Moab. Again, that term shows up in the Hebrew. Interesting word choice. Once again, I digress. And ventures back to Judah. Okay, Orpah returns to Moab. She's talked into it, but Ruth, no, 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 not Ruth. In one of the most startling and bold statements of loyalty uttered in the entire Bible. I mean, if there's one epic moment, Ruth, it's this one. She declares her allegiance to Naomi, to Naomi's people, and to Naomi's God. She says this in particular, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. I mean, this is literally what the Hebrew says. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And thus may Yahweh do to me, and worse, if even death separates me from you. This declaration may very well serve as the most comprehensive definition for the Hebrew word chesed, 
I think I brought that up last time. Sometimes our translations translate love or better, steadfast love or promise-bound. I like to call it promise-bound love. But this is not a dictionary definition for sure, but it is a definition of example. That's what chesed looks like. And with this declaration of faith allegiance, God has begun to form a whole new family. Two different races, a Moabite and an Israelite. But Orpah left. Ruth didn't. But despite such noble companionship, Naomi still is so crushed by her losses that she asks for a name change. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. No, Naomi means kind or pleasant. She says, no, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Our narrator closes the chapter, however, not on that note, but by pointing out that the two women have arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We see that in Ruth 1.22. Kind of a weird way to end a chapter, and they arrive at the barley harvest. Oh, yay. I don't even like barley. <clears throat> Actually, I do. Barley soup is really good. Anyway, the barley harvest began at the beginning of the Feast of Passover. Huh. Naomi and Ruth have left Moab and returned to the land of Judah at the beginning of the barley harvest, at the beginning of Passover. Let me rephrase that. Naomi and Ruth, an Israelite and a Moabite, two different races, have left, have exodus a foreign land and come to the promised land of Israel at the time of Passover. Well, echoes of the book of Exodus, right? Huh, what a coincidence. Lucky for them, they returned. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, there is a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. He's an Ishkabor Chayel. He's a, a man of mighty excellence, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up some stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. She wants to glean. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go. Go ahead. Interesting. I do want to stop there. Naomi's response to, to Ruth suggesting that she should go into the fields to glean. Here's a glimpse of Naomi's state of mind, okay? So I guess question number one is, why didn't Naomi go with Ruth into the fields, right? I mean, there's no suggestion she's physically hampered. She walked from Moab to Judah for crying out loud. I mean, two people gleaning will gain greater returns than just one, won't they? Two people gleaning will be safer than one lone person in the field all by themselves. Yet Naomi does not go. Has her despair got the best of her? Is her spiritual tank empty? Anybody relate to that, by the way? Has all her energy spent on worry and bitterness worn her out? Question number two. All she says to Ruth is literally, go, my daughter. Okay? By the way, this is the first recorded conversation between Naomi and Ruth since Ruth made that declaration to Naomi. Right? In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, she makes that comment. And then in verse 18, she says, it says, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. 
Did she say nothing more because she goes, all right, it's no, no use arguing? Or was she still so bitter and angry that she had to bring along this Moabite daughter-in-law with her that she stayed silent? Was this the first thing she said to her from that moment? Might be. I don't know. Anyway, no warning to be careful, right? Uh, this story said in the days of Judges. I mean, she might have said to Ruth, you know, <laughs> this is when everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Maybe you should be careful before you go into that. No word even like that. Just, yeah, you may go. I mean, Boaz seems to be concerned about Ruth getting abused in other fields. Heck, he's worried about her getting abused in his own fields. He has to warn people not to harass her. Naomi later admits, yeah, it's better to stay in Boaz's field than to go into another field. You could get harassed or worse. Yet here, she just says, go. Just lets her go. No warning, no nothing. See, when bitterness and despair are done beating us up, not only do we lose interest in our own hopes, but in others as well. Verse 3. So Ruth went all out to gain grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, as it happened, there's more to it than that phrase, the uh, Yaker Migreha, that's uh, as she chanced to chance, as, uh, better put it, as, as luck may have it, as luck may have it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how you would translate that. Luck? Coincidence? As luck may have it, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Limelech. Then in verse 4, while she was there, Boaz arrived. Actually, literally, Boaz, and behold, Boaz. Like, um, in fact, I don't think our translators do a good job doing that. Uh, Bush writes, and wouldn't you know it, Boaz came from Bethlehem, son of a gun. <laughs> what a coincidence. She just happened to be in his field, and he just happened to show up. What luck. Anyway, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said, and the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. A harvest blessing. We see this in other passages. Then Boaz asked his foreman, uh, who is this young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the Hebrew is very uh, sophisticated here. Uh, English translation... Um, Yowza. Or, ooh, baby. Okay, I just made that up. But it's kind of the idea there, right? Whose young woman is that? <laughs> is she, uh, you know, seeing someone? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what he's saying. And the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she said, for I'm only a foreigner. Now, there's different terms for foreigners, people who are not citizens. Uh, a gare, which is a legal resident alien, right? Moses went to Midian 
and got married to uh, Jethro's daughter, Zephora, and made him a gare, a, a resident alien. He had certain uh, responsibilities, but he also had rights and privileges and protections under the law. Okay? That's what the Old Testament talks about as a gare. She doesn't use that word. She uses the word nakar. I'm a nakar, which means I don't have any rights and responsibilities and protections under the law. And yet you're still kind to me. What have I done that you should be so kind to me? Verse 11, yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May Yahweh, the God of Israel, under his wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You've comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called her, called her, come over here, help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and um, pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up, and don't, don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket, an ephah, 29 pounds. That's quite a haul. She carried it back into town, showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May Yahweh bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose, in, in whose field she had worked, and she said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May Yahweh bless him, Naomi, told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us. Does your Bible say kindness? Say kindness? Is it? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, okay, but that's the word chesed. That covenant, loyalty, promise-bound love, that I where you go, I go, where you stay, I stay. That kind of love allegiance, all right? He's showing his chesed to, to us, as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives and one of our family redeemers. He's one of our goels. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women uh, right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. You could have told her that at the beginning. (laughs) But you see what's happening to Naomi now, right? So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest. Now we're ending a chapter with another harvest. A wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. Just like chapter 1 with Naomi and Ruth arriving at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, Ruth chapter 2 ends with Naomi and Ruth settling in Bethlehem and continuing on to the wheat harvest. And here's where we're called to respond to this story. And we are called to see, to look for the subtler movements of God, not only in the story, but in our lives as well. So let me ask this. uh, Do we see the subtle hand of God in where we've been located? 
you know, the where question. Ruth's story makes note of a as chance, as luck, as coincidence would have it, she wanders into the field of Boaz. She's left the fields of Moab and into the fields of Boaz, who just happens to be a gracious, godly man and a potential kinsman redeemer for Naomi, and by extension, Ruth. But the narrator, narrator's being sneaky here, okay? There's no categories of luck in Old Testament thinking. He wants us to come to the conclusion that the subtle hand of God has guided loyal and faithful Ruth into the field where she would find grace and provide for her mother-in-law. He wants us to see the subtler movements of God that may in fact lead us to a certain physical or geographical location for his express purposes. Think about where you've been this last week. Have you been to the Piggly Wiggly? I was last night. Because at the hotel, they have like one of those waffle maker things, right? Which I love. You know, the ones that you flipped. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know what they had as well last time I was here? Only sugar-free maple syrup. What kind of an abomination is that? <laughs> so I went to the Piggly Wiggly and got myself a little thing of maple syrup. Guess what they got rid of this time? As luck would have it, the waffle maker. <laughs> and yet I was chatting with some people. But did you find yourself in a grocery store this week? At church, obviously you're here. Or at home for something in particular, or at work, or at the gym, or somewhere you weren't expecting to be. Okay? Were you there by chance? Or is everywhere you find yourself the possibility of discovering the providence of God? It could be a big thing like helping someone who really needs your help. Or just asking, how are you doing? You look like you're struggling. It could be something small like God just wanting you to know some piece of his magnificent creation and drawing praise from you. So I was driving in last night. I was going through Coloma and by those wonderful, you know, pine forests and like, wow. So beautiful. God, you're so great. I once found myself at Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. I was connecting from a flight in Philadelphia, flying back to Dayton, Ohio, where I lived. And I, I hadn't eaten breakfast. I hadn't eaten anything since breakfast, I should say. And by the time was, the plane was going to land in Dayton, it was going to be 10 o'clock, and I'm starving to death. And that's when I discovered, by the grace of God, Five Guys hamburgers. Ever been to Five Guys? How many of you have been to Five Guys? Those of you who haven't, it's awesome, especially the French fries. They fry them in peanut oil. Oh, they're so good. Anyway, so I got myself, for the first time ever, a Five Guys burger and fries, and I'm there just ugh, loving it, and I'm, I'm wolfing that burger down because, you know, any moment they're going to call me in to board the flight, they don't let you take food on the flight, and so forth. And as I'm just horking down my food, there's a guy that's just... Uh, just, you know, they're around the corner, kind of adjacent to me, sitting there. He, he's a, he looks really despondent. He's well-dressed. His head's down. I offered him some fries, which he very politely turned down, which I was grateful for because they were so good. Anyway, <laughs> so I said, you know, looks like there's something wrong. Are you okay? He goes, I had a really tough day at work today. I said, oh, how so? 
He said, well, most of the people I deal with are incredibly dishonest people. We just made an extremely unethical decision for the, for the organization. I said, wow, what do you do? He said, I'm a newly elected U.S. congressman. By chance, I was sitting next to a man who was quickly becoming disillusioned with politics and the shenanigans that happened on, Cap happened on Capitol Hill especially because of a controversial bill that the House had voted on that day, and the press had lied about what he had said, and he was very frustrated. And then he asked what I did for a living. And I said, well, I'm a food critic for airport restaurants. <laughs> okay. So now I'm a, I'm a pastor. And you looked up and he said, wow, what a coincidence. I can do some prayer, pastor. And I said, and I will. And so we did. I prayed with him right there. As we're boarding the plane, he, he looked back as he was sitting somewhere else, and he said, what are the chances of today, of all days, I'd be sitting next to a minister? <laughs> yeah, coincidence. Chance. Luck. No. This is the providence of location. This is where the subtle movements of God can be seen. And I ask you again, where have you been this week? Where will you be this week? And where will you see the providence of God? Here's the second one. We need to see the subtle hand of God in whom we've been connected, right? Not only does the narrator tell us by chance, occurrence, Ruth wandered into Boaz's field, right? Uh, that's the where question. But then she goes on and says, wouldn't you know it, Boaz himself showed up. This is the who question. Boaz, who just happens to be a relative Naomi's. Boaz, who just happens to be a godly man who fears God and, and obeys his law. Boaz, who the law would call upon to be a kinsman redeemer for Naomi, and by extension, Ruth. My path to vocational ministry came at 11 o'clock p.m. at Rocco's Pizza when I was 24 years old. I got saved when I was 21. I was raised Jewish, uh, after my parents divorced, I went to a mainline Protestant church where I heard nothing. I heard the gospel once. I take that back. Uh, and that guy got dismissed as soon as he preached the gospel. Wow. And um, I got saved at 21, and I got a voracious appetite for the Word of God. I mean, I was studying everything. I'm like, wow, I never knew any of this stuff. And I'm reading everything, and I'm just, my mom is like, oh, my gosh, we got a Jesus freaking house. And one night at Rocco's Pizza, I was working at Rocco's for 10 years, paying my way through college and seminary. In fact, I worked there so long, everybody thought I was Italian. And, and I sono parlo in italiano, so they thought I could I speak in Italian. They, I must have been one of the cousins or something. Anyway, I'm there late at night. There's only one pizza left. I'm So I got all my work done. I got a Greek Bible open because I'm... I, thought all good Christians need to know Greek and Hebrew because I'd never gone to church at a Bible-believing church before, right? I'd only listened to Chuck Swindoll and Tony Evans and David Jeremiah, and they always said things like the Greek says this, the Hebrew says that. So I just assumed all good Christians knew Greek and Hebrew. So I'm buying workbooks and teaching myself. So I'm, I got First John open in the Greek text, and I'm trying like crazy. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> anyway, I, at this point, I do know a little Greek. He's this tall. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, so at 11 o'clock at night, I'm sitting there. I'm waiting for Tim Samoski to pick up his pizza. He walks in, and he goes, what you reading? I said, well, <laughs> I'm trying to read First John. 
He goes, in Greek? I go, well, like I said, trying. He goes, are you a Christian? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, what church do you go to? I go, I don't go to church. I, I, I. He goes, just by chance. My father-in-law is a pastor at a church, a Bible-believing church. You should come. I said, okay. So I showed up at church. Next thing you know, I'm showing up all the time. Next thing I know, I'm in charge of the Sunday school class. Next thing I know, I'm in charge of an entire youth ministry. Next thing I know, the senior pastor, whenever he goes on vacation, puts me in charge of his, his class, and I'm loving it. And one day he preaches a sermon on vocational ministry and the call to ministry. And, uh, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I think I'm being called to ministry, right? And uh, Tim Samoski comes to pick up his pizza the next night at 11 o'clock, and he goes, hey, do you know why my father-in-law preached that sermon yesterday? So well, I'm assuming he was calling people to ministry. He said he's calling you to ministry. Well, they had altar calls, and I always felt uncomfortable. <clears throat> but I said, in my heart, I came forward. You tell him that. The providence of God was in the guy named Tim Samoski at 11 o'clock at night picking up his pizza that brought me by the hand of God's providence into vocational ministry. Who's crossed your path lately? If you had a writing utensil in your hand and a piece of paper, could you jot down five names of people you ran across just this week? Is that coincidence? Is that luck? Or is that the providence of God that may be putting you in their path to be a blessing to them? thing. We need to see the subtle hand of God to draw us out of our despair. Now, it's the huge gleaning and the mentioning of Boaz and the potential hope for the future if Boaz redeems Naomi and by extension Ruth that suddenly lifts Naomi's eyes out of her sullenness, out of her despair, out of her bitterness to go back to God's chesed. Indeed, as we as we said, it'll take Naomi's ability to see God's promise-bound love to pull her out of her bitterness, and so it does, right? Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his chesed, his promise-bound love, his kindness to the living and to the dead. And for all of our linden luck, as my wife terms it, it has also constantly con brought us into immediate contact with God's providential provisions. We can get bitter, but it's hard to stay that way when we just constantly saw God's chesed towards us. His promise bound, where you go, I will go faithfulness. That's what draws us from out of bitterness. Last thing I want to bring to you. We need to see the subtle hand of God that has a bigger purpose for redemption. That's right, this not-so-epic book of Ruth has some monumental pointers towards the gospel. So we finished chapter 1, like we did chapter 2, with the mention of a harvest, right? Barley harvest, wheat harvest. I'd like us to consider the bigger purposes of the mentioning of barley harvests and wheat harvests. See, this not very epic story with few overt appearances of God, no miracles, no prophetic speeches, one magnificent declaration of allegiance, of course, but it offers us a much more subtle picture of God's Grand redemption plan. Chapter 1 ends with Ruth and Naomi, two women of different races, a Moabite and an Israelite, 
a new family, so to speak, exodusing out of the land, a foreign land, and into the promised land, right at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that harvest happens to be the celebration of Passover. Passover, when a Exodus 12, 38, mixed multitude left a foreign land and traveled to the promised land of Israel. I think we have that here. All right? Barley harvest, feast of Passover. Mixed multitude leaves the promised land to participate in the redemption plan of God. And then chapter 2 ends with the wheat harvest, which occurs during the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Wheat harvest. Feast of Pentecost, when the first fruits were celebrated, and soon we will see Ruth the Moabitess brought into the family of God by the gracious act of the kinsman redeemer, and all of this foreshadowing events in the future. Yes? Are you starting to see it? If you're not, Passover, Jesus' death on the cross, which redeems all who swear their allegiance to the God of promise-bound love who draws us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Exodus is out of that. Pentecost, where Jesus' church is birthed, which reaps followers of Christ from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to make a new family. A subtle, not very epic story that our nation could hear in a world of black lives and blue lives and peaceful protests and violent, destructive riots and kneeling and shouting and fighting, God offers a much more subtle answer. He offers a new family. One that has no interest in ethnicity or the color of a person's skin, but who that person's king and savior is. And that's the basis of this new family. In God's world, we started raceless. I mean, can anyone tell me what race Adam and Eve were? And the coloring books make them look white, but who knows? We don't know. There is nothing. And throughout the story of God, this redemptive purpose of forming a new family out of all these different peoples is showing up again and again and not by chance. If I could review, in the beginning there was no race other than the human race. There was an emerging family, Adam and Eve, and his, they're called to fill the earth. Races emerge as distinct groups only after the fall and the dispersion created by the confusion of languages. The human attempt at unity at the Tower of Babel was disbanded by God in favor of a more overarching and God-centered plan, because the Tower of Babel was a man-centered plan. The beginning of the redemption plan through the string of interlocking covenants was started with a wandering Aramean, says Deuteronomy 26.5 who was to start not a new race, but a family, who would bless all the other families of the earth. That's literally what it says, the Mishpocha Haaretz. Even when Abram is termed the Hebrew, right? It was a term never used by Israelites themselves, but by non-Israelites. It was a term that well, it wasn't even an ethnic term. It was a social term referring to those in the periphery of society. Even when Israel is officially deemed a nation, it is as a nation that will be a kingdom of priests to all the other nations. Throughout the Old Testament text, we see those of different races becoming part of the growing family. Exodus 12, 38, the mixed multitude leaving Egypt. Shamgar, the Canaanite in Judges 3, 31. Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. That's a Canaanite name. One of the judges of Israel was a Canaanite. Ruth the Moabitess, the Sidonian widow of Zarephath, name in the Syrian. Isaiah pictures a whole new Israel out of all the other nations, says 
Isaiah 66, 20 to 23. We see Jesus' response to Gentiles who exhibit faith. We see the astonishment and the change of plan when Gentiles begin to enter the kingdom to the astonishment of, of the people of Israel. Paul explicitly states that one of the gospel's intentions is to create a new race, a new family grounded in Christ, not cultural background or ethnicity. Paul also states the effects of the gospel in the previous categories that might create inclusion or exclusion and eliminates those categories in favor of a new family. And this eschatological expectation, this future expectation, is a new family purchased for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And here in Ruth, this simple, quiet story, not very epic, about two widows, two different races, and Israelite, and a Moabite, and a godly kinsman redeemer, we have in seed form the subtle answer of God to all the pain and the strife that this world experiences. God offers a new family. God offers a new home. That's not luck. That's not chance. That's chesed. That's God's faithfulness. That's God's providential movement in history. That's the gospel emerging in the subtler movements within the story of Ruth and her redemption through her new family. And by the way, that suggests to us that we too are a vehicle for this new family, to offer this new family, this new home, to others, to other alien and strangers from God. And Jesus said it himself, John 4.35, lift up your eyes and look on the Say fields. Fields. They're white for harvest. As luck may have it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Ruth 2. This beautiful story, this amazing story where if we just dig a little, we see some amazing things that you have to tell us. But it's not just learning something cool about you. That's wonderful. And if it evokes praise and worship, that's great. But maybe you need to steer one of us in this particular direction. Maybe we need to locate ourselves under your providential guidance and your redemptive purposes Maybe we need to identify a person that we need to be a redemptive agent towards that's in our lives, and that's not by chance, it's by providence. Maybe we just needed a word of encouragement today, and you've given it to us. Maybe you need to rebuke us. Maybe you need to comfort us. I don't know what you need to do in the hearts of these people. You do. And your spirit takes his word and puts that seed into our hearts and God, I pray that it would evoke a harvest of glory to you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. I, I hope that we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people prayed.